I'm going to invite you to pray with me in just one moment. Um, but when I was supposed to be here a year ago, it got snowed out. And so flying here Sunday night, I was coming with fear and trepidation. Oh, not again, Lord. But uh, we deferred a lunch, Ellsworth, Callis, and I, and we were going to have lunch this week, and now it's to be deferred much longer. But uh, I want to give thanks to God for his witness and his example and his influence in my life before we begin. Father, I thank you so very much for this place. I'm deeply grateful to be standing here, deeply grateful to be a part of this community, even if from a distance. I'm especially grateful for the grace that came to me through the teaching and the influence of so many dear men and women of God. And I especially give you thanks for our brother Ellsworth. I thank you. And I hope uh, if he can hear and see this, that he will be pleased. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to introduce myself. I'm Francesco Bernadone. Uh, Most people know me as St. Francis of Assisi, the great patron saint of peacemaking. I have to confess I have a little bit of misgiving about that because there's so much confusion about peacemaking and there's so much confusion about me. So one of the things that I want to do this morning in this inaugural sermon is to clarify the nature of peacemaking and the nature of me, why I became a peacemaker. It is a truism that that the meaning of a person's life cannot be contained in the duration of that life on this earth. That is, we have to know something about what came before him and something that came after And I want to tell you a little bit about my family and my history, but I also want to tell you in the next two talks something about those sons of mine who continued on this ministry of peacemaking, specifically St. Francis of Geneva and St. Francis of Epworth. Stay tuned. My story begins with my father and my mother, Petro, Bernadone, and Pika, Bernadone. Petro was a wealthy linen merchant in Assisi. He was working at a time when the economy was going through a massive change. It was moving from a barter economy to a moneyed economy. And one of the things that that meant was that he was able to travel further distances to buy linens. And the best linens were in France. The best women were in France. And that is where he met my mother, Pika. My father taught me the ways of the world. He taught me how to win power and retain power through money. My mother, on the other hand, taught me the ways of French romanticism, singing troubadours, knights, chivalrous knights in shining armor. These are the stories that she put into my mind. These two streams formed me, nurtured me, and shaped me. The, the, str- the stream of rivalry and competition of my father and the stream of romanticism and betrothal and wooing of my mother. These streams are running through every peacemaker. Because we lived in a time of great economic change, Our towns 
the basic rivalry that we experience day in and day out, especially the town just across the valley named Perugia, it, it, it became competitive. We were competing for the same market. We were, also, uh, uh, we were also trying to earn the blessing and the favor of the same patron, uh, the Pope. And so this kind of natural rivalry and competition uh, became uh, actually quite toxic and became violent. One time we, we took up arms against each other, and I was very quick to enlist as a true son of, of Petro and a true son of Pica and a true son of Assisi. I got on my armor, I took my sword, I mounted my horse, and I went into battle against the citizens of Perugia, our brothers. And we got hammered, totally shellacked. My dad was despondent about it. My mother was depressed about it. And I was in a dungeon about it for 13 months. 13 months in a dungeon in Perugia in chains, rats crawling over you. When I was finally released in an exchange with other prisoners, when I returned home, everyone said, he's changed, he's different. What could be different about it? How could this happen? What's going on? We didn't have the diagnosis at the time, but basically what I had was post-traumatic stress. And post-traumatic stress is an internal pressure that stays on you. It affects you in such a way that you see the world differently. You feel it differently. And I began to recognize people that I had continually overlooked. I didn't know they existed. I began to notice poor people, the city gates. I understood and saw that there were now peasants wearing garments like this in the fields. I even began to recognize the lepers who stood at a great distance from the roads and the towns. One particular Sunday, coming out of church, I ran into a beggar. He was asking for alms. And I just felt this gesture come over me to to give him what I had. This was a new thing for me, but as I reached down and I put what little money I had into his hand, I could feel this internal pressure come off. I felt lighter, felt like I could breathe. I saw another poor man, did the same, had the same experience. One day, I saw a leper. This was after church. And again, this, this gesture came over me to, to reach out and touch. And I actually, against my better judgment, embraced the leper. And I felt such peace, such release. I, I, I felt what I thought was the presence of Jesus. One of the misunderstandings about me and, and my understanding of, of why I embraced poverty is people thought that I fell in love with virtue. I fell in love with lady poverty. That's false. You can't fall in love with a virtue. Not unless you're a narcissist. You don't fall in love with virtues, you fall in love with people. And what I was doing was falling in love with Jesus. Jesus is who I was falling in love with. And I found him here among the poor, and I found him here among the peasants, and I found him here among the lepers. 
So I gave them what I had. I ministered to them. I reached out to them. And the pressure came off. Well, as you can imagine, knowing a little bit about my father, he was not pleased when he heard around the town, your crazy son is now giving all of your money to the poor of Assisi. What are you going to do about this? He's shaming you. You gave this son everything you had. You gave him all of your treasures, your linens. You taught him the ways of the world. He was supposed to continue your name, continue the family business. What are you going to do, Petro? And we had a showdown in the piazza. My dad and I. He confronted me with the townspeople and Bishop Bishop Guido standing off to the side. He said, you have shamed me long enough. You have shamed your mother. You have shamed our name. I want everything that I have given to you back now. And so I began to disrobe. And you know, he was right. I looked and everything that I owned was his. My outer garment, tunic, my shoes. I was stripped down all the way to my undergarment. And I looked and I realized, this is my father's linen as well. So I pulled them off in front of everybody. And I handed them to my father. And just like embracing those lepers and those poor people and those peasants. I felt the pressure come off. I was being free. See, most people, they know that scene because of Zeffirelli. They know that scene and they think, oh, wow, he's being defiant. I wasn't being defiant. I was being liberated. My father thought he owned me like he owned those linens and it was killing me. I could not live under that pressure any longer. So if that is the cost of freedom, have it. And it was at that very moment that Bishop Guido, bless his memory, came around to me, put his Episcopal cloak around me and covered my nakedness and took me into the monastery. And for the next 13 months, almost as much time as I spent in the dungeon, Bishop Guido and the monks refathered me. You know, I have this great reputation for prayer and spirituality, but for 13 months, I could not pray thee, our Father. But because of Bishop Guido, I could. I could pray, finally, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and may it start here with me. May it start here with me. This is important for you to know because many people thought as a reformer, I never used that language for myself, but as a reformer, they assumed I would protest the corruptions of the church in Italy. You think it's bad now in America? You guys got it easy. We were on our fifth crusade, killing people we called heretics. Albigensians, the Cathars, and even the Muslims. It was a bad century for the church. But because of Bishop Guido and because of the Benedictine monks, I was able to recover my faith 
in God. Not long after that, I was worshiping by myself in a little chapel in St. Domino's, and I was contemplating the cross there. This was a dilapidated church building. And I heard a voice that said, you will rebuild my church. Now, you must understand, folks, this is one of the other misunderstandings. I'm a very simple man. I'm not even a priest. (laughs) Don't tell anyone. Most people think I am. I'm a layman. I don't have a deep theological training. So if I heard what I thought was the voice of Jesus, you know what I did? I obeyed it. (laughs) I didn't know better. So I saw the fallen down walls, the rocks, and I started to rebuild the church. I was also a little bit literalistic in my understanding. I didn't have a great gift for metaphor at first. But you know what? As you act in obedience to the voice of Jesus, even while you're screwing up, he is able to guide you and to correct you much more easily to get you where he wants you to be. And after a while, people heard about crazy Francesco rebuilding the church at St. Domino, and they came out to help me rebuild the church. And after a while, there was a group of young people gathering around me to pray and to learn about the ways of Jesus. This movement grew so quickly and so unexpectedly that Bishop Guido, blessed be his memory, knew that I needed to have an audience with the Pope to form a new order. Now, up at this point, the only orders we knew were monks, and I had no desire to be a monk. I sensed that my calling, because this is where the pressure came off, was to work with the poor, to work with the peasants. Indeed, this garment is not clerical garb. This is the This is the garment of peasants of Umbria. That's why I wore it. I wasn't trying to be religious. That's where my ministry was. So I had no concept of a a religious order that wasn't cloistered. But Bishop Guido arranged for me to meet with Pope Innocent, who was a remarkable man in many ways. And I took uh, Father Matteo, and I took Brother Thomas with me, and a few of the other brothers and priests who were now gathering in our community. And we went and had an audience before Pope Innocent. And Pope Innocent, when he saw us dressed in brown like this, and this is actually a new garment. I got it just for you. Most of my garments are very patched up and holy. But for you, you Methodist, I wanted to look nice. (laughs) He looked at us. Like this, and he says, it looks like you should be ministering to the swine. Go on. Again, remember I told you I was literalistic, so I told the brothers, I said, let's find a herd of swine here in Rome. That shouldn't be too hard, and we will minister to them. And that's what we did. We went and we preached to the pigs. We anointed them. We prayed over them. We blessed them. Got in the mud with them. Bishop Guido told us to go back to St. Peter's the next day. The, the Pope had had a dream the night before. How are we to know this? He had a, night, a dream the night before that the Basilica was crumbling down, the Basilica of St. Peter's, and there was about a dozen young men in brown cassocks propping up the church. 
and he realized the vision had come from God, and he asked us to come back to meet with him. And this time when he saw us standing there in our brown garbs, only now covered in mud, he said, what have you been doing? And he said, well, sir, we did what you said. We've been ministering to the swine. And he said, these are the kinds of men I need to renew the church, to rebuild the church. And so he made us into an order, a non-cloistered order, an order for the poor, an order of preachers who would go out into the highways and the byways and minister to God's lost children who kind of step out of the hierarchy and all of that competition and begin to woo God's people back to Jesus. Just as the Holy Spirit had wooed us back to Jesus through the poor. My affirmation of the church should not be understood as agreement with the church. I disagreed with many things in my church. I disagreed strongly with the Fifth Crusade against the Muslims. I thought it was the wrong way to go and that it would leave a very painful and difficult legacy for the rest of our brothers and sisters who came after us. But when some troops were leaving from Assisi to go to Damasia, Egypt, to confront the armies of the Sultan al-Kamal, I volunteered to go with them. I didn't wear a suit of armor. I didn't take a sword. I just wore this garb. I decided to fight the Muslims the way Jesus has taught us to fight. And this is one of the great lessons of peacemaking. There is only one way to overcome evil in the world. It's the way of the cross. Any other way to fight evil extends evil, even in the church. Indeed, especially in the church. And I honestly believed going to Dalmatia was going to cost me my life. I went prepared to be a martyr. And it was, a rough, it was a rough journey. There were a couple of moments when the guards of the sultan, we weren't sure if they were going to let us go through. Finally, we were brought to the sultan. Much like we'd been brought to Pope Innocent, we had an audience. And it went on for two days. Two days of conversation. He was intrigued. He was intrigued with our, our garb like the pope had been. He was taken by the simplicity and the sincerity of our ministry. To make a very long story short, there's both good news and bad news to this story. The bad news is that the sultan did not repent and confess the name of the triune God. The good news is that I was able to return to a CC with my head attached. That was good news. Where did I learn this? All of these things I learned from the Gospels. I had much of it memorized. And especially this story that we just heard read from John chapter 4, when Jesus goes not around Samaria like most of the rabbis of his day, but he goes through Samaria. 
these were the Cathars, the Albigensians of his day. They were the heretics. As you know, you're scholars. This is a seminary. The Samaritans were a syncretized Jewish faith. They were part of the legacy of the northern kingdom that had been infiltrated by pagans. And they altered the three pillars of Judaism, the Torah. They made into a Samaritan Pentateuch, the temple. They had their own on Mount Gerizim in the territory. I would say that's a good definition of heresy. Alter the foundations of a faith, and you're becoming heretical. But Jesus didn't go around. He didn't ignore them. And unlike James and John on their way into Samaria in Luke's gospel, he didn't want to call down fire from heaven upon them. He goes through Samaria. And not only that, he finds a representative, somebody who knows something about broken covenants and estrangement, a woman who's been married five times and now living with someone who's none of the above. And he sits at the well, and you are Bible scholars. You know anytime you see a man and a woman at a well, you're having more going on than refreshments. Whether it's Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Moses and Zipporah, anytime you see a man and a woman at a well, you know you're dealing with a nuptial drama. Jesus is not just conversing and engaging with this heretic, he's wooing her. He's wanting to bring her life into his and then to return his life into her. And this is the nature of peacemaking. Peacemaking is not making nice. If you do it right and do it well, you will be hurt deeply hurt. Peacemaking is not cohabiting with differences. Even the pagans are nice to one another, Jesus said. Peacemaking is giving life to your adversary while they're your adversary. And they become your friends when you do, oftentimes. That's peacemaking. So that's why I went to minister to the Muslims. Three paragraphs of my rule of life are about ministry to Muslims. I have a very narrow rule of life, sisters and brothers. There's an Anglican priest in D.C. that I've been looking over. Uh, He needs lots of help. Uh, He's in over his head. One of my axioms is if you're in over your head, go deeper. Go deeper in the memory of the church. Go deeper in the scriptures. And so I have been trying to help this dear Anglican brother understand something about my charism and something about these scriptures that have to do with peacemaking. And he's been listening. He has a long way to go, but I'm pleased with his progress. The 10th anniversary of 9-11 in 2011, he got a phone call from Georgetown University asking if his church would host an interfaith dinner, get this, between a Muslim cleric, a Jewish rabbi, and a Christian scholar. 
and they would discuss two questions. The first question is this. What in your tradition is a resource for peace? Second question, what in your tradition can be co-opted for the opposite of peace? This young rector uh, was smart enough to take this invitation to his vestry, to his governing body. A number of his members worked in the Pentagon when the plane plowed into it. And no Turo member was killed, but they had friends who were killed. This was not a theoretical conversation. He brought the offer to the vestry, and they prayed and discerned and said, yes, we believe God is calling us to take this step, to cross over this boundary, to enter a little bit into Samaria. And so they hosted a dinner. They had tables. They had talks. They had meals. They had conversations. It's not unlike this little evangelism thing they do there. And you know what? They became friends with the local imam. They even started allowing the local mosque to use their kitchen during Ramadan. It's just a gesture of hospitality. Nine months later, there was a New Testament scholar by the name of Ben Witherington who came to their church to teach on Romans. And on the front row of that day-long conference was the imam and his elders of his mosque. They wanted to learn the book of Romans because they wanted to know something about this Christian God who creates people who would behave like this. A year later, the same pastor got a phone call. He learned, literally almost a year later, that the six-year lawsuit that they had been involved in, they had lost and they lost big. It was good that this rector was learning about the virtue of poverty. His next phone call was from that same imam, offering his congregation to worship in his mosque if they needed a place to meet. And when he announced it to the congregation, they weren't sure whether they should applaud or not. <laughs> they didn't have to take up the offer. There are three moments in peacemaking. Three moments that we'll look at here in the Gospel of John. The first one I've tried to describe to you this morning. It's the moment of giving yourself as a gift. It's the moment of understanding how God has worked in your life to bring you to a moment in great controversy, great conflict, and sisters and brothers, you will all face it. If you minister in this church, in this century, you will deal with this. And as you allow God to heal you of your trauma, whether from childhood or and everybody else gets it, you know, nobody gets the perfect childhood, okay? No one. No one gets the perfect ministry. You will be wounded. You will have trauma. But as you allow Jesus to work through that, as you allow him to heal you and you pay attention to the places where he meets you in that, that becomes a gift that you get to offer in this work. 
The next moment we'll look at tomorrow is the moment of reciprocity. It's when the adversary receives you as a gift and then reciprocates and gives themselves as a gift. Then the third moment, which we'll look at from St. Francis of Epworth, is fruitfulness, where it's all headed and why God has designed it this way. God bless you.